Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome back to the Dash Arts Podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. After two years of planning, Dash Arts is finally in the midst of building the world of Middlemarch. If you follow our work, you'll have seen glimpses of the design ideas, images of our community workshops and more recently of the rehearsal room for our upcoming production of The Great Middlemarch Mystery. Part immersive theatre and part murder mystery adventure, our show will be on from the 7th to the 10th of April in Coventry, the UK 2022 City of Culture. George Eliot's masterpiece has so many layers to it and so much detail in it that we decided to make a podcast series about the process of creating a work of theatre from it. I've spent the last few years with many wonderful colleagues adapting the script, workshopping it in Coventry in London with actors and participants, designing it and finally now rehearsing it. This podcast will delve into the themes of the book and how they translate to live theatre, alongside interviews with the actors and the creatives behind such an ambitious undertaking. And our podcast producer, Rachel, is back to be our guide. Thanks, Josephine. I'm excited to be back. So this episode will focus on the making of Middlemarch, the creative process that took you and Ruth from sitting down for a coffee at the British Library to kicking off rehearsals last week with eight actors, five scripts and four weeks to create something totally immersive. We also managed to record some fascinating footage from our community workshops in Coventry. First, though, I caught up with yourself and Professor Ruth Livesey, who is an expert on 19th century literature and an integral part of the Middlemarch process. Ruth, I would love for you to sort of tell us a little bit about your work and what you do and your sort of connection to Middlemarch, really, through that. Sure, no problem at all, Rachel. Thanks for this and thanks for having me on. Um, Yeah, so I'm a a scholar of 19th century literature and I've worked in the English department at War Holloway and the University of London for for many years now. And George Eliot has always been an author I have loved and um, written about and thought about. And the story of Eliot as the woman who broke all the rules in the 19th century and and transformed what we thought um, a work of art could be, what a novel could do, what the place of reading could be in in a modern society society to me is a, is a really compelling one still. Uh, the woman who was kind of so out of place in her in her own community but went on to um, extraordinary success on a kind of international level um, and also became very rich in the process which is something I like sharing with students now yeah. you could actually get rich from writing books in those days so um, what I was aware of was that um, 2019 was the bicentenary of George Eliot's birth so 200 mm. years since she was born and as that anniversary was approaching I was really thinking about how um, when it was Charles Dickens's 200th anniversary in 2012, there was massive kind of hoo-hahs. There were receptions at Buckingham Palace. The BFI did a special film season. The British Council had a 48-hour Dickens readathon globally across the world. And as someone who teaches Dickens Elliot, and Elliot side by side, and I think they're both brilliant, but in quite different ways, I thought, I wonder what they're going to do for George Eliot, who in her own day was much more esteemed than Dickens in many ways, less popular, but more highly esteemed, I would say, um, but but completely familiar and recognised and read and loved. And I was already getting a bit chippy about that. I thought they're not going to do anything for her because she's a woman and a bit problematic and everyone thinks of her as serious. And she's from the Midlands. And it's not like journos can just pop down the road and go, ooh, foggy Dickensian. It's a bit harder to place her somehow and, and give a hook to her story. And also... She hasn't travelled out into popular culture in the same way. You know, they're not, there are hardly any film adaptations of Elliot. There's two really good Andrew Davies TV series. Um, but but she hasn't become kind of popular currency in the way that people will still think about Oliver Twist or other novels. 
And why do you think that is? So I had a, a great research assistant on the project I got funding to do in 2019, um, which is exploring exactly that question around the bicentenary. Why is it that Elliot, you know, there were things for Elliot. There were conferences, academic things, um, organisations and museums around Nuneaton and Coventry had special displays and collections of their holdings. So it's not there was nothing about Elliot at all, but the kind of national and international traction around it was was much less. And the research um, I did, uh, and, and certainly my, my postdoctoral research associate, um, Helen O'Neill, did as well, really explored why that was in relation to where George Eliot um, stays famous. And it was quite striking that Helen did this research on the digital textual archive. So writers are still writing about George Eliot, but she hasn't travelled out into other spheres in the same way. So there are hardly any film adaptations, as I said. She's famous still, but in a very literary kind of sphere, let's put it that way. So she's, and that kind of reflects what her writing's like. Her writing is quite intimate. It's not, it's not self-consciously theatrical in the way Dickens's is, where we know Dickens is experimenting with kind of cinematic forms, things like jump cuts and zoom in, zoom outs, before there's even cinema in Dickens's work. Eliot's work is much more self-consciously about the relationship between a reader, an individual reader, and a story as it unfolds, and what novels can do that other forms of art struggle with more, such as taking you really round to see from another person's point of view, then taking you back out again. So it's this quite private, readerly relationship. And that's much more difficult to open out, especially in a world where we're reading, you know, reading a text the size of Middlemarch, got it on my shelf here, is is just a real challenge to to keep focus for that for that long period of time. So some bits about the quality of her writing as well, the way she writes. That's really interesting. I mean, she was referred to as a, a rural historian once, I think, by Henry James. But like, do you think it's partly due to that setting? Partly it be because her work focuses on rural areas of study and central life, whereas Dickens is more London-based? Yeah, Henry James's comment is a really interesting one because that's how she, that's what she got famous for with early novels like Adam Bede, um, Scenes of Clerical Life, Silas Monner, set in that rural setting around, around the, the Midlands, North. And, and, and Warwickshire she was sort of very widely loved initially because she showed a world that was disappearing that was kind of just vanishing out of sight you know she she was writing at the peak of the kind of railway age massive transformations of the economy telegraph rapid post but um she's usually writing back about a period of history which i've called the kind of the just past it's only just in the past it's only just becoming history it's like a generation away or your childhood memory space like 40 years before so she's playing with that sense of of something that's vanishing and, and can be captured and preserved in her writing so you know in some ways you can think of some of the descriptions of things like harvest suppers and adam bede as a, as a kind of capturing of an intangible heritage, how people used to sit around a table at dinner, how they ate, the songs they sang. So she captures a world in that way. So it's the bicentennial, nothing's happening, and you decide to make something happen? Yeah. So, so, so really, this is the this is the joy of having coffee with someone, and where it can lead to in quite wonderfully creative and dangerous ways. So. Um, <laughs> Around the bicentenary, one of the things that was happening as various people saying, I think it's Elliot's bicentenary, we should do something, was that um, Dash had been asked or had offered, I'm not quite sure, but Josephine can tell this story better than me, to put on a, a cafe, one of the, the Dash Arts cafes at Warwick Arts Centre. And through conversation there, the fact of the bicentenary and George Elliot and George Elliot being from 
Coventry or living in Coventry a long time, being from Nuneaton just north of there, um, came up. So this was the theme for a cafe. And by some marvellous um, freak of fate, uh, my work on Elliot, which I was doing at the time, was recommended to Josephine through a mutual friend uh, who's head of, who's head of English at Warwick University at the time, Emma Mason. And thanks to that intro, Josephine and I had coffee at the British Library. We both um, had the time to do that, which is also the thing, make time to have coffee. And we just started talking. So Josephine, so back to that cafe, that first cafe that you were asked to do by Warwick Art Centre. How did that come about what was that for was that already to do with George Eliot or was that to do with Coventry it was not it was to do with Coventry effectively I I had a I had a conversation with uh, Julia Carruthers who's the artistic director at Warwick Arts Centre and we we were discussing bringing the the Ardash Cafe events which are very much like a pre-Covid thing and we hope a post-Covid thing as well there are there are there are these pop-up events that are very embedded in arts performance with conversation that float around it and I um, was chatting to Julia about mounting a few of these cafes at the Warwick Arts Centre and uh, I asked Julia what what you know what would be interesting things to focus on in in and around Coventry and Warwick Arts Centre in early 2020 and Julia said oh well it's of course it's it's in 2021 it's the anniversary of Middlemarch it's the 150th anniversary of the writing of Middlemarch and um I um I thought oh that's kind of brilliant because I've just read Middlemarch and I'm a very late comer I'm a real like kind of late adopter to the book there I meet people all the time who've read it every year for like 30 years or you know keep revisiting it at really kind of important points of their life to and to re-understand and identify with different characters I I have to say that like my first encounter with the book was probably about four years ago and um I kind of thought oh, that's interesting and because Dash is focusing currently on and what it means to be European and, and what we are kind of being European in a kind of post-Brexit landscape. I, uh, I I was kind of interested in what, in how George Eliot understands the Europe and the role that Europe plays in her novels. And so I started to talk to people who might be able to introduce me to somebody who was thinking about this in their work. And I met Ruth. So Ruth and I plotted actually an, an event at Warwick Arts Centre, which was really specifically about George Eliot um, and her, her writing and the role of the outsider in her in her work but as Ruth said the conversation and the encounter became so much more than just setting up what might be an event that would happen six months later at Warwick Arts Centre it was a sunny day we sat in the courtyard of the British Library and Ruth started to tell me about her work and um it was it it appealed to so much of it was so much synergy with in 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 the ideas that Ruth was focusing on with the work that Das does and I think I should probably explain that a bit because I think it gives you a really good context for the for the production um alongside the cafes and alongside the occasional large-scale international show that Dash has made over the last sort of 16 years of its existence, we also have something that we call the Dash Residence, which is a, a world that pops up. It was it started when we were working with artists from across the, the former Soviet Union, where we would build we built a Russian country house which looked beautiful and was very evocative and was there was a samovar boiling on the in the um in the corner of the room and the audience walked in and they were there was music to listen to and they were playing kind of cook they could get involved in the cooking and they can get involved in the kind of playing chess and creating the world with us. And it was partly performance based and partly an art installation. It's a really beautiful world. Uh, the audience uh, are as equal and as important as the artists. They all we move the set together, we cook together, we perform together, we dance, we jam, and um, it's really the community that makes the show. Like you know, we need the audience, we need the volunteers, and we need the performers all together in the mix to build to build our residences. 
And I've been thinking for a long time with my colleagues at Dash about ways in which we might be able to make new work for the residents. So we're not just building a a performance space, which is gorgeous, and then doing stuff in it. But actually, there is a piece of theatre made in and for that world. So that's sort of been a kind of a a question mark for me at the back of my mind that's been kind of bubbling along for a few years. And then Ruth told me about George Eliot and her writing. And I had read it and encountered it myself, but it was so helpful hearing Ruth explain, really, that it's the whole community, particularly in Middlemarch, which is so vital. And as Ruth kind of subsequently counted, there are more than 90 named people in Middlemarch. George Eliot builds the town. She has the the townspeople. She has the local politics. She has all the doctors. She has all of the coroners and like all the tradespeople, all the friends of all the guests. There is just an extraordinary picture she builds. And ultimately, it's all of those people, all of the characters that play a, a role in bringing about the action in Middlemarch. It's not just the, the, the few key parts, it's the community. And um, listening to Ruth under- talk about George Eliot and the world, the kind of world building that she does in her in her books sort of really um, struck a chord for me with the way that we go about building our worlds for Dash, performing arts worlds. So that was that encounter, that moment. And it was really at that very moment at that coffee when we sort of said, well, let's do it. Let's try and kind of re- kind of set, create the world of Middlemarch and tell the story story in a in a theatrical way it was really important from the outset that it would be about the community and the world of Middlemarch rather than trying to with some difficulty as Ruth was just articulating um adapt the book itself into a traditional play yeah I mean it sounds like an incredible jumping off point but then what has been created like you say is it's not a straight play we should say right now it's an immersive world that spans Coventry city centre um was the decision to do something like that quite early on we didn't know exactly how we would tell it immediately we came into it really quite open to how to what what might happen um, and then and then lockdown happened so we were going to start working in april because we had we had a there was a little bit of money that was left over from the ahlc funding i think if i'm remembering that right so we could start but we were entirely on zoom we would read we all you know it was ruth and myself and christina who's our producer and brian who's the associate designer in australia all regular, regularly meeting and reading bits and analysing the characters and thinking about how we might tell stories without really knowing how. And then I think slowly over the course of those conversations and those funny little Zoom encounters, it, it started to become very clear that we would be telling the story across different places. We had we found particular spaces that we loved, the community of the mayor's wife's living room, the the bank itself where where the where the banker Mr. Bulstrode works, um, the pub which is such an important part of there. And there are several pubs in Middlemarch, but we focused on the Green Dragon because uh, the Green Dragon has a totally fantastic gossiping, I, I don't want to say bullying, domineering landlady um, uh, who uh, who is a real character. Uh, and so, so we want, so the Green Dragon came about. And so we slowly started to think, well, we, we can, if we, maybe we can tell the story of Middlemarch through the prism of several different spaces that existed in the book. Yeah. And I think that was really important um, for me to understand this kind of theatre making as well, that as soon as Josephine started telling me about the Dash residences, Um, I immediately was imagining what Middlemarch would be like and how that experience of of participating in these quite intimate domestic scenes and being in the middle of the action was such a beautiful mirror for for how Eliot's um, 
novel's work, but in a very, very different way. So a very true theatrical reimagining of the experience of reading one of her novels where you're literally in the thick of the action and you can't separate yourself from these characters, but giving that to our audience members and definitely not through a traditional mode of, 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 of theatre making, a kind of traditional format play. Um, so that was really liberating as well, that, that we... We freed ourselves from plot to some extent, and um, I think that's great because one of the problems with with Eliot's novels and the wonders of Eliot's novels is is her endings. They're always really a bit annoying that she doesn't give you a kind of a, a wonderful kind of lift where where everyone's happily ever after, or there's a, a everything's wrapped up at the end. You know, so the the ending of Middlemarch is is about a kind of saying, well, the fates are kind of incalculably diffusive that we don't we can't really put a name to great achievements. Um, and and it's it's a very dispersed kind of ending, um, and that seemed really true to this idea of kind of moving between these different spaces and sites across Coventry and experiencing some of Middlemarch as as we've reimagined it, um, but but always with a we we have given something for people to pursue through that story as well. We we realise we need to give our audiences a bit of a, a task, which has been one of the the fun bits of reminding um, readers who even know this novel really really well that there, there is actually a murder in the story as well, and 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 that becomes the heart of what we do. But just to give a little bit more context to what Josephine says, I mean, my, my original research around the bicentenary was um, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, and that was exploring this idea of, of, of middleness, as I, I called it. So Middlemarch is a novel set in the Midlands, literally in the middle of England is how it imagines itself and how Eliot kind of evokes this idea of a middle England. And what on earth Middle England might be now, what it was then, is it, it sits so snugly with with Dash's kind of creative work as well over many, many years and how Middle England can treat the outsider, which again is, is part of that storytelling in the novel. We see settlers coming from afar, moving into the town and, and they don't always do well in that in that middling sort of provincial town that we, we see in that novel. So again, we're, we're teasing out some of the difficulties and complexities of being an outsider in a community like that as well in the, in the way we've we've brought forward certain parts of the story. Um, but I think it is the richness of Eliot that, that in some ways she wants to undo the whole idea of heroes and heroines who should be the focus of our attention and should carry the whole story. Um, so the kind of the thickness of the world we've built um, really reflects that side of the novel that's, that's easily overlooked in other kinds of adaptations. That, that's so true. And um, what was really fun is that we've ended up focusing on the character of Ladislav, the, the journalist who's really going out and wants to save the world. He wants, you know, he's pushing for change. He wants to kind of fight corruption. He wants to expose expose a whole lot of bad work going on, like, you know, bad deeds going on locally. And he really believes in the power mm. of journalism to to make a change in your in a community and we weren't really going to include him at all in the, in our show and um i think he only arrived towards the end of 2021 he just suddenly kind of he became um an important person for us quite late in the process and i and i think that's lovely because i'm not sure he is obviously to many people who did watch the andrew davies adaptation he's played by rufus sewell and everyone has a crush on rufus sewell so he has a kind of an important role in in that adaptation but he's not a major player in some ways not as like dorothea for example, or Dr. Lidgate, for those who know the book. So that was kind of lovely that going through this process with Ruth and really trying to look at who could, who, who were people, who were important players for us and, and who could yeah. kind of help build the texture of the show 
enabled us to look at Ladislav in a way that we hadn't really before. Well, looking at all the characters with a slightly different framework, because we should say that the, instead of being set in the 1880s, the show is set in the 1980s. Yes, the 1980s thing came really late in the process. And, and it's important to oh, sort of know that, what, know why, actually. I mean, we when we were doing that early work on Zoom, we kept acknowledging that there were some mm. characters who felt more contemporary and some who felt more traditional. So we fought for a while of making the show quite timeless. You know, we could keep some of the more fuddy-duddy, old-fashioned characters in the 19th century. There was some this, the character of Dr. Lydgate, who is this doctor who's fighting for change, you know, really spoke to us as, an, as, a, as a doctor who maybe have come in as an as a, as a economic migrant um, to work in the UK, potentially from from a country that is in the former British Empire, who comes in as an outsider and deals with outsiderness, and that felt to, we could talk, we could look at it in different that role in different ways, in different through different generations, and so on. So we kind of sat there thinking, well, maybe we will not be time specific in our show. We ha- we also had Brian saying, please don't make this a 19th century period piece because the costumes are going to be so expensive. Good point. <laughs> that was also running through our mind. But there is something else which happened, which has kind of helped us with the time, which is that we went into our first workshop in September 2020. And it was just miraculous because it was pretty much the first time that anyone had seen anyone since before COVID. And um, we went in with, we decided we we're going to focus on Mrs. Vincey, the mayor's wife's like all of the action that we could potentially relocate and put in her living room we we create we 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 decided we'd take and we literally stripped chapters from the book stuck them into a kind of bound them up stuck them into a pack in kind of chronological order and went into the rehearsal room with a whole bunch of people who had never read george Eliot before and read for the week we just literally just read it and then thought about how we would kind of kind of devise around that scene. So, you know, what, what, how we could remount, look at that scene in a different way in that space. And it was a hard process. It was quite difficult, but it was so valuable. And what came out of that immersion with her text, with these brilliant actors, was realising that we um, we wanted we loved her language. We wanted to keep quite a lot of her language, particularly the dialogue that she builds between the characters. And it was really important for us to keep quite a lot of that beautiful 19th century, 19th century conversation. That was the first thing. The second thing is we nearly needed a script. We didn't know at that point. I don't think until that point we we weren't sure there would be a script because we were thinking so much about building worlds where the where there's so much improvisation that has to happen because the audience are part of the experience. You know, the audience is sitting having a cup of tea next to the mayor's wife and making polite, silly conversation about, you know, gossip in town. You can't really script that because it happens in the moment. Mm. We realised that we needed a script as well because there were the key, gorgeous moments of romance, of kind of challenge that was already in her book that we wanted to preserve. So we then, Ruth and I, came away thinking, OK, well, we're going to have to start to write a script um, and we started to sort of strip away uh, at so much of this extraordinary text and form a a script for that li- for that living room, and realizing that it couldn't all be nineteenth century um, language. It, it w- and, and the working out between us what bits we wanted to keep that would be slightly jarring and potentially slightly unfamiliar to twentieth twenty first century audiences, and which bits we needed to tweak and adapt. So that kind of helped us lead the um, decisions around time. I would say. And part of it was in that first workshop, there was a moment where um, we'd done a lot of improvisation, but then there was a large speech from towards the end of the action where, where Lydgate kind of accuses the town of having excluded him, where um, our fantastic actor um, who's, who, was, who was taking part in the workshop 
just went from the script. And it was really astonishing. It was so moving. It was so compelling. It was so completely something uh, that made sense and would resonate with audiences now. And, and for me, it was that revelation of saying, yes, you, you give a good actor a script. And we've seen this as we've moved into later stages um, more recently. And 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 it can take you somewhere, you know. That, that you know, if we we're still got using Shakespearean text, and there's no reason why Eliot's text can't still carry that kind of connection and emotion and truth about humanity and the human condition um, that is somehow timeless. Um, and interestingly, I think from in our thinking, once we decided on a script that was somehow true to the to the language of Eliot, it then became much easier to make this later move that, that just came upon us in a in a production meeting um, where we were thinking about the time setting um, and, and when we would when we would set the the, the play because somehow once the language is there that speaks of Eliot, the kind of the all the mise-en-scene or the costumes and the kind of the, the, the other bits of setting that says this is this is a 19th century text doesn't somehow matter as much actually what matters is the timelessness of the the kind of the humanism of, of Eliot's storytelling and and the beauty of her language and why the 80s yeah I, I think there was it was I mean it was so live we just were having a conversation and and it was like how about I don't know I think I just said how about we just do it like this um because Eliot's as I said Eliot sets her own works nearly always and especially middle of March it's really explicit really carefully set against the calendar her research notes show this um about 40 years before she was she was writing um and she's really thought hard about what this means and the narrator comes in and tells us why it matters because um it's a time of change the railways are just coming to the city um things are much slower at that time because communications are just changing the city's just the trade's being really affected by new trade deals with with europe basically so um there's an economic downturn and i was thinking well if we set it in Coventry, you know, the Covent, a fictionalised version of Coventry 40 years before where we are now-ish, where do we get to? We get to 1982, um, which in so many ways resonates with the bigger historical story that Eliot's saying. She's writing about a time of massive economic restructuring. What happens in 1982-83? It's the peak. It's the year of three million unemployed. It's the year when Coventry newspapers have all these headlines about businesses closing. We know from the original story that Mr. Vincey's um, in hock to his brother-in-law because of the downtrade turn in his trade. There's a lot of economic anxiety that pervades Middlemarch as well. Um, then in the 1980s, <clears throat> again, this whole sense of with with the boom of the financial industries and the decline in manufacturing, a lot of attention shifts to London, a much more kind of London financial market world and a cultural world as well. A lot of kind of sucking out of energy from the from provincial towns. Again, we see this part of the backstory of Middlemarch. You know, Elliot's talking about a time where smaller Midlands town had a much more self-confident sense of identity, whereas in the time she's writing, a lot of that's ebbed away and it seems to be a much more London-centred world um, and kind of cosmopolitan world that she's writing about. Um, so in all kinds of ways, basically, there are, there are many, many resonances with that. For us, the huge shift, obviously, is, is to a digital world um, from a pre-digital world. And I haven't yet shared this with Josephine, but I've been playing around with with some of the newspapers we're creating for the thing. And, and yeah, after a conversation, thinking about the work of a, of a professor at, at Coventry University, pinpointing the fact that, that our more progressive newspapers just move from hot metal type to, to cut and paste and, and, and computation and what's going to happen to the old printing jobs. Again, so there's all kinds of communication revolutions going on. We've decided that the intercity high-speed rail is coming to, coming to Middlemarch in our story. Um, 
um, and obviously in Elliot's novel, it's the first railway line connecting Middlemarch to to London and Brassing. Birmingham's called Brassing. Picking up on what Ruth is saying here, as part of the research and creative process for the show, it was really important that we heard real stories about what Coventry was like in the 80s. Here's a clip from one of our recent workshops where we had first-hand experiences of those times. I moved to Coventry in the 80s, 85. Things that stuck out in my mind was, and I know they sung about it, didn't they, the specials, there was a lot of violence in the city. you go to a pub and there would be stabbings and people, you know, and glasses, people were being glassed. It was quite, it was quite violent. And, you you know, you'd, you'd, you'd be sitting there and go, oh, something's kicking off and then you'll just move on. You know, it was almost like... Accepted nowadays, it'd be horrified, but it was it was quite violent. And the big thing I remember was on the buses, because I'm from Liverpool, which is rough anyway. And I came to Coventry, and the buses they had the you know the perspex screen between the driver and the passengers. They didn't have that up north. It was like, what's this? And it was to protect the drivers from being stabbed. Well, you jumped on the back of the bus sometimes. And you could, yeah. Bus, yeah. And, you could yeah. and because yeah. of that, you couldn't get change for a tenner. You know, again, yeah. we could do that before. Always in comedy, you always have to have the right change on the bus. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, silly little things that you notice that why is that different from elsewhere? And I think it was the violence. You have to sort of assume it was because there was so, because of politics at the time and upheaval and change. That's yeah. unemployment. Yeah, 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 definitely. Just the culture at the time. Football yeah. moments, isn't it? There was also like a change in sort of like the youth culture as well, due to the fact that there was like the revival of the mods and rockers scene, that sort of idea. Because, um, I mean, I was like 16 at the time. And it was a case of you suddenly joining with a crowd of guys that are all wearing parkas and we've sort of got boating jackets on, we come down the town, we're singing, we are the boats, we are the boats, you know, and we're outside the Sainsbury's. There's a group of about 16 of us scaring the hell out of people because all we're shouting is we are the mobs. In Coventry. In Coventry, yeah. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I had my head kicked in by a bunch of skinheads one afternoon um, because my girlfriend was poking fun at them. Um... (laughs) At that time, my musical taste changed completely. I'd gone from sort of like just listening to whatever was on the radio and then you suddenly get channeled into this thing of listening to Quadrophenia and The Jam and other bands that were around that era trying to get into that sort of scene. Mm. And it's really strange how that one film and that album and the words from that album of Quadrophenia seem to have stuck with me and changed how I was from being this kid with specs to being this guy that suddenly thought, yeah, I can join in and I can be part of a group. And, mm. you know, and yeah, we had rumours of guys walking around town with Stanley knives that scared the hell out of you. But you could still go to the Polish club at night and have a disco. We got kicked out of the bug and black back for dancing on the tables. It was bad, but good. Yeah, things change. George Eliot did base, and maybe we said this at the beginning, George Eliot based Middlemarch on Coventry. It is in some ways the story of, of a version of Coventry, and we are retelling that story of a version of current Coventry through our show. Yeah. And um, it's it's fascinating how, in a way, how little work there is kind of mapping Middlemarch onto that period of Coventry's actual history. So Elliot was at school at Coventry in Coventry in the period in which the novel set. So she did know a lot about um, 
the local politics and the gossip and the work around the hospital that was really happening in Coventry in the period in which she set it. And when she was researching the background for the novel, she was still in touch with old friends in the city and wrote and got great gossipy notes about the scandal at the hospitals that was going on, about um, you can see from the way that she describes the mayor and so on, she's got someone particular in mind. Um, and I've got another another part of the, the, the funding I've got from the Arts and Humanities Research Council We're running a little project um, trying to find the, re the real Middlemarch in the history of Coventry, um, which kind of runs alongside this, because I'm sure there's there's more we can uncover in relation to that that real history, if you like, that she that she was playing around with. So so for for Elliot, Middlemarch was and was not Coventry. Um, she got quite burned early in her career by making her um, use of real people's stories um, just a bit too recognisable. It's how her identity was discovered. So she wrote, writes under, obviously, George Eliot's a pseudonym, um, a pen name she took up when she started publishing. But it was only a couple of years later that the, the story she told in Adam Bede and Scenes of Clerical Life was so close to the actual historical knowledge about families and gossip around um, Nuneaton, where she, her family were from, uh, were living, um, that, that it was kind of worked out eventually that she she was, she, scandalous woman who'd left to go to London, was living in, unmarried to a, to another man. And what is her real name? Mary Ann Evans, or Mary Ann. When she moved to London, she decided she'd be Mary Ann because it sounded a bit more glamorous. <laughs> I think we can all relate to that. Bringing us slightly more up to, up to the present day, we have, um, after that first encounter with Mrs Vincy and Mrs Vincy's living room, we, we, we then moved on to looking at the bank and building a similar script for the bank. And over the last year we have written the green dragon pub script and the town hall so basically ruth and i have spent i, I suppose 18 months building and writing um scripts for five different locations across middlemarch and um they are going to run simultaneously so that it's not it's not going to be a case of of the audience having a kind of guided tour around uh, having a scene here and then a scene there and, and maybe the scenes repeat it's not it's going to run in real time from the from the moment this, the show starts to it ends and there will be um f kind of for the full length of the performance there will be activity happening drama unfolding gossip being spilt um in each of the five locations and that was a very interesting uh, interesting kind of moment in our process too to, to kind of to work through because uh, there will be kind of key moments of drama that will happen in each of those places i mean i can't i don't want to give it all away but like there will be something interesting important big that will happen for the characters at different points in different places and we needed to build a sort of score that a score a script that would like not encourage FOMO um so that you wouldn't feel really frustrated that you'd missed out on that moment because you were having a really nice time in a bank training to be a bank clerk or you were knitting with a whole bunch of brilliant people in the town hall or you were running around with a journalist with your pad trying to take notes on what else was going on I mean and run, conducting interviews because that will be available to you as an audience member anywhere and we've we've had to think through how to enable people to have a, to know they're going to have a phenomenal time wherever they are we've been employing different ways to do that one of those is that you will hear about the action and the drama in everywhere, in every location you're at. So although you might miss that key moment, you will hear about it in a different way, in different places, in really fun ways. So wherever, wherever you encounter the, the drama, it will be entertaining and interesting and creative and different. And also we're doing something quite unusual in that is that we're, in, we're enabling our audience who will step over the threshold at the start of the show and become part of Middlemarch. They will choose to become the journalists the bank clerks, the doctors, the medical students, the tradespeople, they will choose that role. 
And they will have free reign to make their own route across Middlemarch, to stay for as long as they want in the pub or to stay for as long as they want at the mayor's house drinking tea or taking out money in the bank. And and if they want to follow someone who's really interesting, um, out a character, Dr Lydgate on his rounds, if they want to leave the bank and follow Dr Lydgate and see where he goes, that's completely fine for them. And that feeling of that empowerment that we're going to give the audience to make their own decisions to travel through Middlemarch in their own way, I think will do a lot to offset the kind of concern that they might have that uh, that they might have missed something. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly complicated, but it's also so very true to the experience of reading this particular novel as well, in which there is so much going on and, and, and different characters' life stories are always put in parallel to each other, you know, to... Two, you know, three love problems, the, the two people waiting for someone to die. So, so wherever you look, there are multiple examples of what it's like to experience something and, and multiple points of view on action as well. And, and the novel takes us to those points of view. And Middlemarch, of course, was also a novel that people do return to across their lives um, and just see completely different things in each time. And, and I wonder if, if in honour of that, we should just sit, try and get someone to come to all performances of, <laughs> of the great Middlemarch mystery and take an entirely different route each time and, uh, and, and, and kind of experience experience it. it could you could come five times and 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 just have a completely different experience of the story each time yeah I sort of described it um as a as a choose your own adventure that's exactly what it is and really they'll have a hand in it because it's as as Ruth was alluding to there is a murder and it is the responsibility and the role of our audience to inco- and kind of find out who find out who did it and why and gather clues and pick up physical evidence that they come across on the way and then share it at the end of the show as part of the kind of revealing of of, of the plot. There's another side to the show, of course, which is really important, which comes back to the point that we had at the beginning of the conversation about the fact that it's the world of Middlemarch. It's not just the few key people, it's the community. And I'm, I'm grateful to the enormous and wonderful support that we have for the show. It's extraordinarily generous, but it would never be quite enough to enable us to people like to, to, to afford a cast of 90 something actors and um, so um we are privileged in a, to be working in a different way which is alongside our professional cast of eight we're also building a cast of middle people really significant roles who play kind of significant community roles across all the locations and they are brilliant wonderful individuals based in and around coventry who are part of our performance they will be like you know bank clerks they will be deputy editors of the papers they will be loan sharks and auctioneers and pas and they will be part of they will be joining us through the rehearsals and they will be in the show some of whom will have spoken roles and some of them will have um, kind of more stewarding roles or kind of world building roles and and we're currently alongside the rehearsals running workshops with in and around coventry with um these non-professional brilliant theater loving community loving individuals who will be part of our show rivers burst in no, handsome though. Very handsome, smart, repairable. I'm running a book on it. What's that, Bam? Well, I'm taking bets on the dots are getting engaged to Rosamund Vincy. <laughs> the flower of Middlemarch stands to reason the two of them, meeting every day alone. Her distraught about her brother's illness is coming with all those fancy foreign notions and treatments. Quite intimate, I hear they are now. He could never afford to keep her. Not the way she's been brought up. Well, that's ever got in the way of two young people in love. You said, Ruth, that people identify with the characters of Middlemarch. And I just found that really interesting because... Obviously, the characters in our Middlemarch, in this Middlemarch that you've created, are, you know, they're, they're, they're very real. They're complex and catty and snide and jealous. And those same people are also very warm and lovely and funny. Who do you identify with? 
Well, from our cast, from the characters we have in Middlemarch, I think it probably would be Mrs. Bulstrode, or at least I admire her the most because because she loves her fashion. She's quite worldly. She's loves a good gossip, but would never admit to it, um, and uh, tries not to be judgy, but is quite judgy, and thinks of herself as very pious and religious, but actually um, also has some very worldly, practical points of view about getting on in life. But she she experiences a terrible misfortune in the course of the play, and comes out of the novel actually as one of the most the most faithful hearts, I suppose I would say, in the play. And she embodies a kind of a spirit of faith and goodness that, that is quite rare in the, in the novel. Um, I would say my, my favourite characters are one we, we haven't been able to put in our version. <laughs> and there's an even cattier gossip called Mrs. Cadwallader. Mrs. Cadwallader, who's who's basically a, a, a wonderful kind of nosy, snobby, busybody who, you know, tries to get everyone to, to do what she wants them to do and, and doesn't succeed very well, but always says, I knew this was going to happen. And as I've got older, I've identified with her much more. Um, and we won't say any more about that. <laughs> I'm sorry we can't have her in because she's she's from the country set, um, and the other person is from the yeah. country set is Dorothea. And um, and whenever I tell people we've adapted Middlemarch and we haven't included Dorothea, it's like it's such sacrilege because she is she is the heroine who has she's the she's the heroine to end all heroines in some ways in in kind of in the novel in British novels. Um, she's an extraordinary individual. So is she the person that you identify with? Then? Oh I, no, I I think I can only I can only I can only dream of identifying with her. <laughs> I think I might identify. I, I really, I mean, I love Ladislav just because he's such a kind of, he's so determined and he's absolutely kind of um, clear that he's not going to be swayed in his vision. It's kind of quite mm. extraordinary. I have admiration for that. I think I, I think I identify with Dr. Lidgate, um, who, who, who is totally flawed. He's a flawed individual. He's compassionate and really wants to change the world and, and, and goes about it in all the wrong ways. But his heart is in the right place, I feel like. And he's a flawed individual and we all are. So I, um, I think I feel for him. Right now I'm recording this in digs in Coventry, coming to the end of our first week of rehearsals. I'm just back from a stumbling run through of all the scenes that unfold in Mr. Bulstrode's bank with our amazing cast. We made it just about through to the end, which was pretty remarkable, incorporating our script packed with George Eliot's original language alongside a lot of improv with our middle people and audiences. All the workshops we've run in Coventry with our middle people, including one last night in the studio, has totally informed this improvised conversation. I brought into the rehearsal room a brilliant story that was shared with us about dancing on the tables in Coventry pubs in the 80s and late nights in music clubs and I know we have much much more to come next week I just need to find some time for a little more sleep first Thanks for listening to the Dash Arts Podcast and thank you to the incredible speakers, Professor Ruth Lipsy, Josephine Burton and all our community participants. Next time we'll be diving deeper into the themes of George Eliot's Middlemarch and hearing from some of our actors about the process. Please see all details for how to book the show on our website. To play us out today, I've got a clip from one of our workshops where we encouraged a little bit of improv. I'm Rachel Head. Thank you for listening. Talking about people having no underwear on, um, I heard a little story the other day. You know Cynthia, yeah. Cecilia's mum. Well, she works in the Devere Hotel there. Yeah. And the other night she was uh, doing the chambermaid and around the rooms and she sees Mick Jagger running naked down the hallway <laughs> while holding his tickle tackle like what? this. Please let me in, please let me in. She's let oh, him in sure. the room. Jagger. He didn't even give her a tip or anything. Oh, Charlie. Oh, tight gear. What was he doing in Coventry anyway? I forgot to ask that. He's focused on the tickle tackle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the tickle tackle. Well, it was a bit small.